and welcome to a Dry Socket episode of the Play It As It Lies podcast. Now, both post-surgery here in the conference finals of the NBA. With me, as always, my lovely co-host with three, three and a half. How many less tooth are you missing now, Frank, since the last podcast? Uh, that would be four, good sir. That's that's eight, minus eight teeth uh, in this studio right now between the two of us. We are in health and safety protocols, much like our dear friend Chris Paul, but that's not stopping us from, from getting this show on the road, nor should it. No, much like uh, the Phoenix Suns that just don't stop, we will not stop for anything. Not a few pesky wisdom teeth. Lo and behold, through all the surgery, the anesthesia, the 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, we are here fighting to talk about basketball today. Aren't you excited? Absolutely. Uh, how could you not be? Conference finals, uh, one series away from the finals, past the semifinals. It, that's a mouthful. Bro. You know, There's a lot of finals going on right now. Whole lot of finals, but Frank, we start ourselves on the Western Conference Finals since we're already a game into that one. It is, of course, a 1-0 lead currently for the Phoenix Suns, a team you've been so hyped to tell us about every single round, about how great they are. Uh, they started off the series with a 114-120 to victory over the Los Angeles Clippers, obviously highlighted by Devin Booker's first-ever career triple-double, 40 points, 11 assists, 13 rebounds, an insane performance. Frank, let's get right into it. This is a train that doesn't look like stopping. No Chris Paul, no Kawhi on the other side, but it doesn't look like the Clippers are going to be able to handle the Suns, who already just swept the Nuggets. Another sweep in mind? Well, that would be a, a tall task. I mean, before we go into the Suns, I think that you have to give this Clippers team, uh, especially since we last talked um, on this podcast, you have to give them all the credit in the world for what they've been able to do, the fact that they've made it this far. Uh, the feat that they pulled off against Utah, winning four straight, two of which without their best player in Kawhi Leonard, it's kind of miraculous. And I'm sure you'd agree, Rodham. It's a great story. And I think it's funny how the Clippers have kind of done a complete 180 in terms of what the narrative was behind them. Because last season and into this season, uh, everyone saw them as the arrogant front runners who choked when it mattered most. And now it's Paul George and friends and they're kind of a cohesive group the, the nobody believes in us kind of team um and that's a great story and they're in the conference finals for the first time in franchise history uh, and all that's great and it sounds great the problem is like you just alluded to uh they're up against they're up against it right now because this sun's team uh what else can be said that has not been said already winners of eight straight devin booker picked the perfect time to play maybe the best game uh, in his NBA career. First ever triple-double, like you mentioned. It's just a tough matchup for the Clippers. And they made that game close in game one at the end. But I think the Suns just have advantages at too many positions. And they maybe, you can argue, have the best player in this series right now. Devin Booker versus Paul George is obviously a good debate. I think Booker... Obviously got round one, and if Chris Ball comes back and Kawhi does not, then the Clippers, to me, really stand no chance of winning this series. It's just a matter of how many games are they going to be able to pull off. Well, that comes to a question I think uh, has a question a little bit adjacent to it. When does Kawhi Leonard come back? He obviously left during Game 5 against the series against the Jazz. The Clippers and many people have reported that he has a sprained ACL doesn't sound like an injury you'd likely come back from. Obviously, we have seen a few bizarre cases. Uh, James Harden playing 50 minutes on a torn, ace, uh, in a torn hamstring in, in the Nets series being one of them. But Kawhi Leonard might be a robot. I don't know if he's going to be able to walk through an ACL sprain. So I think if it's safe to assume that we don't see Kawhi again, does this Paul George team bring enough to the table to take out the Suns is a, is a tough question to ask. Because like you said, not only did they start off with all these advantages, um, uh, at multiple positions, and a notable position, I think, being in, in the front court with DeAndre Ayton, who has now not only taken over and absolutely wrecked in a series uh, of All-NBA player Anthony Davis, he also went one-on-one -on -one with the MVP for four straight games. And in almost all of them, I, I dare say that Ayton got the better of Jokic. And that's an incredible situation when you're now talking about this Clippers team that, I mean, their their lack all season, their all season has been who's playing center. Nick Batum started at center in game one here, and I don't think that's going to cut it. And while Aiden didn't have a spectacular performance, 20 points and 9 rebounds, along with 2 assists and a pretty healthy amount of screens uh, that worked around an incredibly small Clippers team, is, is not going to cut it. So, you know, now now we talk about Aiden, you, were, you already listed and alluded to two of the better players in the series, being Paul George uh, and Chris Paul and obviously Devin Booker. But 
I gotta say, if we're talking about the next tier levels, I think the next two or three best players in the series all belong to the Suns, being guys like Aiton and, of course, the phenomenal defensive defender, Michael Bridges. Uh, one of your favorite players, Jay Crowder, my boy, Cameron Payne. I, it's really hard to see, after Paul George, who really is the Clippers' next best player, and are they any better than the next six Suns players? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And it, like you said, even if you say Paul George versus Devin Booker is a wash, let's just say that's 1A, 1B, however you want to slice it. Uh, after that, up and down each team's roster, the Suns just have advantages. They have the third best player in the series, the fourth best player in the series, and so on. And it's hard to overcome that. And again, this Clippers team, it's a gritty bunch. Ty Lu, he's done a, a masterful job getting this team where they are. And guys like Reggie Jackson and Marcus Morris and, of course, Terrence Mann, they've stepped up. But this is the conference finals now, and it's a whole different ballgame. And you're not playing against a Jazz team that, frankly, melted down. You're playing against a well-coached, motivated Suns team uh, that's hungry. It's a good mix of, of young players and veterans, and they've won eight straight. And how many more straight will they win remains to be seen. But to me... I can't see this game, this series going more than five, six games max. I just don't think the Clippers have the firepower to overcome what the Suns are going to throw at them night in and night out. Yeah, I'm going to stick on the lower side with you there uh, on Suns in five. Um, sure, I can see a Terrence Mann game happening again. Honestly, I think if there's going to be one crazy on the Clippers, I kind of like a Marcus Moore senior game. Uh, you know, you, you sent me a fun, uh, fun little picture. The, the the Suns have beaten the Morris in every single round, and probably will if they manage to take out. But Marcus Morris, who with Nick Batum has been spending time at the center role, I can see him having a good little game getting through Jay, uh, Jay Crowder, who is probably looking through other people. But other than that, I don't know if they can buy another bucket. It just doesn't make sense how this team defends. Uh, lining up against a Suns team that does exactly the opposite of every hole they have. The mid-range, the Suns are phenomenal at it. Outside in the corner wing, where the Clippers have let up the best three-point shooting of any team in the NBA this year, it's exactly what the Suns are good at. It just feels like the exact wrong team to be facing at this time, especially without your best player. Easy say, not going to go bold enough to go Suns in four, but here I am with Suns in five. Right, and I think that whatever happened in game one uh, was going to be telling with how this series went. Um, because the Suns were coming off almost a week of rest, and the Clippers were coming off a grueling Game 7 series against the Jazz, in which they obviously had to win four straight. And I think you kind of saw it late in the game. They, they were just kind of spent, and it, it's hard to blame them for being a little bit fatigued, uh, whereas the Suns were well-rested. And it's, of course, the whole debate, uh, rest versus momentum, which one wins out. Well, we saw in Game 1 that it was rest. That got the advantage, and that has that had a lot to do with why I think Phoenix won. And if Phoenix goes up 2-0 in the series, uh, and Chris Ball comes back for Game Three, and Kawhi Leonard is still on the shelf, uh, it, it could have a sweep written all over it. But out of respect to Playoff P, that's right, Playoff P, not way off P, not Pandemic P, and out of respect to Ty Lue and what this Clippers team has done, I'll agree with you. I'll give them a game. And uh, I think we'll narrow in on Suns and Five being the ultimate outcome of this series. Well, I'm glad we could agree there. Uh, you know, the Suns in the finals is, is going to be exciting, I'm sure, especially for you, for the people that uh, can't see, because none of you can. Uh, Frank currently wearing a Suns shirt, uh, a little far away from his natural D.C. team, but he can be repping this team like he did last year. So, Frank, I wish you well in willing another team to the finals after you managed to get the heat there last year. Hey, listen, year. rally the valley, Roden. Rally the valley. Well, Frank, we might rally the valley, but it's time we head to a different valley, one between two beautiful Shenandoah Mountains and the Atlantic Ocean, the valley sitting between the Hills of Peaches, the one in Atlanta. Let's go over to the east. Uh, now that we've settled, the Suns are likely going to be the Western Conference champions. It's in the east. Uh, I think there's a little bit more contention as you fresh out of a Game 7 Bucks, just defeating the Brooklyn Nets and the trio of superstars they have over there, now have to face a mighty task uh, to take out a similarly Game 7 Atlanta Hawks. Uh, the Hawks just defeated the Sixers in seven, and, you know, uh, controversially, some might say the Sixers might have defeated themselves in seven games, but uh, lo and behold, the Hawks behind Trey Young uh, are here again, and uh, it's tough in a matchup with the Bucks and the Hawks to really, you know, partition as the, we've seen the Bucks as this top-tier team for the last few years, the MVP obviously twice, coach of the year in them. 
The Hawks are much more newcomers to the scene. Uh, they won the division this year for the first time ever. They obviously switched head coaches in the middle of the season, uh, but backed by a phenomenal appearance thanks to Nate McMillan. After switching out with Lloyd Pierce, you know, they started a pretty abysmal record, and here they are, well into the Eastern Conference Finals, ready to come off. Uh, and so, Frank, it becomes a tough task, no matter how you cut it up for either of these teams. So who, I guess, who do you want to talk about first? Because it's hard to pick one side or the other. Yeah, well, I think we should start by talking about uh, the Hawks because that's the team that, between these two, uh, everyone's surprised that they made it here. That's the Cinderella, frankly, of this playoffs, and especially in the Eastern Conference. And, you know, I got to eat my words here because I have not been a huge believer in this Hawks team. Uh, neither of us picked them in round one, obviously. Uh, I didn't pick them in round two. You were much more optimistic, so hats off to you. But yeah, this Hawks team, it's an inspiring bunch. And again, much like with the Clippers, it's a great story. And it it's hard not to like what Atlanta's done. And Trey Young obviously uh, garners all the headlines, gets all the attention for this team, uh, rightly so, as their best player. But I think the Hawks' supporting cast, and we really saw it in the last couple games of the, of the, of the semifinals, especially in Game 7, uh, they're not getting the... They're not getting a lot of credit, but I think they should be. Because while Trey Young is obviously an all-star caliber player uh, and a fantastic offensive talent, guys like Gallinari and Kevin Horder and even Lou Williams off the bench, Clint Capella, those guys kind of made the difference, I think, against Philadelphia. And if you do believe in Atlanta to pull off another upset against Milwaukee, obviously it has something to do with Trey Young, in large part to do with Trey Young. But you also have to be inspired by what the supporting cast has been able to do and surprise a lot of people. Uh, I'm sure you agree with that, Rob. Yeah, uh, I absolutely do. And their supporting cast has been one of the biggest selling points that they've had uh, the entire season. And the big thing about that is that, you know, fun fact, John Collins drafted only three or four years ago is the longest tenured member of the Atlanta Hawks. So not only have they had a fresh head coach, but also, you know, a new face, a new franchise face in Trey Young brought in over the last few years. This whole team hasn't had a lot of time to click, especially within the system, but you wouldn't believe that watching uh, the whole series because they look like such great friends with such great chemistry. The passes that we get from Kevin Horder uh, down to Clint Capella, uh, you get Lou Will roaming around the outside, pushing past Tony Snell. It, it just seems like movements that make a lot more sense for a team that has been playing for five or six years, uh, while the 76ers look like the more broken-apart bunch. And... It becomes no less apparent, I think, especially when you look at Game 7, how clearly great this team can be even without Trey Young. I mean, realistically, despite the win, Trey Young didn't light up the floor or anything in Game 7. He was 5 for 23 uh, from the floor. And after the game, he, he mentioned that his shoulder hurt, which, you know, he was nagging on in Game 3. Definitely doesn't help. But aside from a major 3 in the in the fourth quarter, th this was a show of Danilo Gallinari in the third quarter, Krevin Horder in the fourth quarter, uh, Clint Capella monstering down low against Joel Embiid a lot of the second quarter. Most of this team looked ready to throw fists pretty much at any point for any single one of them, and I don't think that they're, you know, I don't think any of them can be misjudged over the fact that even with Trey Young having a bad game, the rest of this team showed up. And I think in every single game that this could happen with the Bucks, whether it be against a few tough matchups with Donis Antetokounmpo, whether it be uh, a good night from Chris Middleton, I don't think that there's a single player on this Hawks team that would back down to something like that. And it really, I think, is inspired for their chances to get onto the next round. Yeah, that's a good point. And sometimes when you're at a talent uh, def deficiency against your opponent, uh, you can overcome that or compensate for that by being fearless and having confidence and being gritty. And what we saw in that 76er series was in the fourth quarter, in, in, a, in, the fourth quarter in clutch situations, uh, no one was more confident and fearless than Trey Young. And it's funny that that's the case because he's by far the smallest player on the court at all times. So the question becomes, now that we've raved about this Hawks supporting cast and you know what they've been able to do getting this far, they're plus 375 to win this series. And the Bucks are minus 500. Do you think those are fair odds given that both of these teams did manage to get here, albeit in different paths unconventionally? And to me, I think... Maybe the odds makers are being a little bit too harsh towards Atlanta, given that, you know, they did get here just like the Bucks did. They are in the conference finals. I get why the Bucks are favorited, but to me, minus 500, maybe that's a little bit too big of a number. 
I would absolutely agree with you. I think this is a nod to the fact that they do have the MVP. And really, I think it shouldn't be anything more than that. We did talk about the last series how you kind of compare their talent. Sure, at the top tier, it's kind of a wash. But after that, the Suns that take over. In this case, it's hard to describe anything as Giannis comparing to Trey Young as a wash. That's a, that's a decimation in the Bucks' favor. And I think that alone could warrant a minus 300, 350 kind of number. But 500, I think, is leaning too far into the belief that the rest of that roster really outweighs that the guys like Middleton and Drew Holiday, neither of which had phenomenal series. Middleton did have a few good games, especially down the stretch in Game 4 and Game 6, but Drew Holiday did not look like the player we expect him to be. And guys like Brooke Lopez and P.J. Tucker sure had little sparks, but compared to the efficiency and the, the consistency that we saw out of Clint Capella, out of John Collins, out of Lou Will, out of Tony Snell, out of anyone on that bench... I think it's giving way too much of favor on the roster-wise. The only other explanation I can also see is, is the coaching advantage, and that is, it's fair. I mean, Coach Budenholzer has been to a conference finals, uh, which obviously you know can't be said for, for the Atlantic coaching staff, but is that really worth that big of a gap? I just, I just don't see what Vegas is seeing, and usually when that's true, there's a reason, there's something we're missing here, but... Talent-wise, I can agree to a minus 300. Momentum-wise, I think they're equal because they both went to Game 7. So I don't know what's pushing Vegas over that extra minus 200 from what I'm seeing and what they're seeing. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And if you believe in the Hawks in this series, which I know you do, me, not quite as much. I'm going to get into that in a second. But if you believe in the Hawks, I think bet on them now at plus 375 because in Round 1 and in Round 2, the Hawks went up 1-0. In both of those series, they seem to get off to quick starts. And if they win game one, or even if it's a competitive game one down to the wire, that plus 375 is going to become something less favorable, like plus 200 or plus 150. So if you want to get the biggest bang for your buck, you think Atlanta could pull off an upset, uh, that would be my esteemed betting advice to pull the trigger now instead of waiting. But Frank, you you know what they say, buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high, and you get a piece of the pie. That's the motto to live by. Damn, that whole thing wrong. But, Rotom, while I've said nice things about the the Hawks, rightly so, I kind of feel like this is where the rubber meets the road. And I just think this is a tough matchup for them. You talk about the lack of playoff experience on this team and the lack of tenured players, and I think something like that is going to show up against a Bucks team that, frankly, has bled the past couple of playoffs. I mean, this Bucks team has been wildly disappointing over the past several seasons, and now that they've gotten over the hump of getting to the conference finals, that was the first check, uh, that was the first box that they needed to check uh, to slaying their demons. And while, sure, maybe they would have lost to the Nets if Kyrie Irving was healthy or if Kyrie Irving was healthy instead of James Harden, they controlled what they controlled. They pulled out a Game 7 victory. Now they're in the conference finals, and... I just don't know if the Hawks have enough left in the tank that they can squeeze out of their roster uh, to pull off an upset against a Bucks team that is motivated, is hungry. Uh, they seem primed to get to the finals, in my opinion. And if I had to make a prediction, I think I would give the Hawks two games. Not not going to lean towards a game seven because I think the Bucks take care of business. And uh, I would say Bucks in six would be my my hedge. Bucks at six is fair. I can see that argument, and obviously that experience is something that you know you gotta you gotta make sure you can get through. But I'm I don't know if this buildup was worth it. You know I'm going Hawks in seven, and, and I think that the only reason we get to a game seven here is if you look at this Bucks history. I think it's hard to say that experience really covers what has been the holes here. There has to be genuine growth from what we've seen in the Bucks in the playoffs before versus the Raptors versus the Heat versus the Celtics versus I think the Raptors again. It, it, you, we've got to see a difference here. And all year, and I said that, I think I've said this every NBA podcast this entire year, every week, every week we were promised that Coach Bud is doing something new and he's trying something out so he can have it ready for the playoffs. And as we've seen in the last few playoffs, he's been outcoached by Spolstra, he's been outcoached by Nurse, he's been outcoached by Stevens, and I am not the biggest Nate McMillan fan. Obviously, I wasn't a big fan of his Pacers team, but... I don't think it's going to take a lot for him to win that coaching battle because he hasn't won it yet before. Sure, versus the Nets, they were outmanned, outgunned, and, and they really they won that game uh, off the back of great Chris Middleton performance. They beat, sure, they swept the Heat, but that wasn't because 
Coach Bud was doing anything special. Beating the Magic, the Heat, the Pistons, whatever they usually do in the first round means nothing to me. This Nets series is the closest thing we've seen to them actually going to battle into a real playoff series. And no offense to Steve Nash, but you've been a head coach for one year, and you don't really have to coach that hard when Kevin Durant, James Harden, Kyrie Irving are playing for you. I think now is the time for Nate McMillan to either show that he's a phenomenal head coach that was just wasting his time in Indianapolis, or it's time for Nick, uh, for Coach Bud to really prove that he is this great head coach, this two-time Coach of the Year award winner that deserves all this credit for bringing this team. And I don't think it any way matters on what's going to happen on the court with the players because we know what Giannis can do. We know what Middleton can do. We know what Drew can do. We need to know if this team can make sense together which I don't think it will. And I think that's going to culminate in a Game 7 flop, as it has twice now before. Well, that would definitely be a, a disappointing ending uh, for this Bucks team. Um, but I think something else that, that's factoring into my decision is as much as the Hawks won that series against Philadelphia, and I'm not taking anything away from them because going because advancing to the conference finals, especially winning a Game 7 on the road, is impressive no matter what happens. But for as much as the Hawks won that series, you also kind of have to feel like the Sixers lost it. And the fact that and the fact that the Sixers were up by 18 in Game 4 and up by 25 points in Game 5 and somehow lost both of those games, sure, the Hawks deserve, deserve a lot of credit for putting those comebacks together, but if the Sixers can go up by 20-plus points on the Hawks, I feel like the Bucks could too, but... I don't think the Bucks are going to blow leads like that, like the Sixers did. They're not uh, psychologically damaged and fractured, and they have better chemistry than the Sixers do, frankly. So I feel like the Bucks are just a more formidable opponent than the Sixers were, and it took a lot out of the Hawks to knock off the Sixers, and I just don't see the same fate happening uh, in this series. But I think we agree, between the Hawks and the Clippers, the two underdogs at each conference, uh, the Hawks would be the better bet of the two to pull off an upset. You know, Vegas does still think that the Clippers have a better chance than the Hawks here to actually win the entire of the championship now that we're just down to four teams. Uh, the Bucks are the favorite here at plus 115. The Suns following them up with plus 175. Uh, kind of going along with what you're saying with both of the, uh, the number three and the number two seed moving along. Uh, but the lower seats here with the Clippers at plus 650 and the Hawks at plus 1,000 present uh, quite a lot of value with only four teams left. I think one of these technically could be good choices. Um, Value-wise, I got to imagine, you know, you, you don't have a lot of slim pick. You have some slim pickings between the Bucks and the Suns, but do you think it's worth taking that flyer in the plus 1,000 Hawks? Well, plus 1,000 is such a big number that, you know, depending on how much you, you're putting down, uh, it could be worthwhile given that you think that an upset's going to happen. I'm not totally ruling it out, although I'm not as confident as you are, but it is interesting that the gap, the gap between the Clippers and Hawks is so substantial. I mean, the Clippers are almost as high as the Clippers are almost as close to the Suns in championship odds as they are far away uh, from the Hawks. And I think that plus six fifty number, the only value that that holds for Los Angeles, is if you think there's a legitimate chance that Kawhi Leonard comes back probably before Game Four of this series, because if he does come back, and somehow, some way, he's fully healthy, and the Clippers stage a comeback, win the Western Conference Finals, advance to the NBA Finals with a fully healthy squad, then that plus 650 would end up looking like a bargain. Because if that happens, whoever the Clippers face, whether it's the Bucks or the Hawks, they would probably be considered the favorites. So the plus 650 is not, I don't think that's totally out of value, but it really just depends on whether or not you think Kawhi is going to play which neither of us do, so therefore maybe the Clippers and Hawks should be closer together. Yeah, you got to wonder if that uh, what's that injury status at, and you know how we talked about it already is Kawhi back at like seventy percent really worth him bringing back? We already saw James Harden uh, kind of limp his way through two mediocre games for the Nets. We saw kind of similar thing from Trey Young in Game Seven. Supposedly uh, Joel Embiid in Game Five and Game Six uh, was nursing some sort of hamstring injury, but. It's kind of tough to come back from injury, especially in the heat of an NBA playoffs and play about 50 minutes. And especially an ACL. To be the best if it's player. an ACL injury. Especially, especially after tearing probably your most fragile ligament in, in your body. So I, I don't know about you, but plus 650 is kind of clear off my radar here. Uh, the Clippers hate to say it, but I don't expect you to be here much longer. But it is interesting because the Clippers, you know, I don't, I'm not saying they would rush Kawhi back or force him back, but 
they're kind of at a pivotal spot because Kawhi is a free agent after this season. They had all of this riding them getting the championship this year, and and Kawhi's inner Kawhi's injury really just came uh, at the absolute worst time uh, for the franchise. And if they lose this series, they're kind of at a fork in the road. Well, Frank, uh, if that's the case, I got a classic line uh, from the great philosopher Nas for you: "Life's a bitch." That's a great line, and uh, it's true. It's very true. Yeah, I'm glad you. Th- <laughs> I'm glad you thought so. Uh, speaking of Nas, though, let's uh, let's move over to Brooklyn for a real quick second. Yeah, let's talk about all the teams that we actually lost here. We lost both number ones on either side: a two on one side on the East with the Nets, a three for the Nuggets on the left. That's a Defensive Player of the Year, an MVP, a former MVP, a whole bunch of All NBA players, uh, and one certain Mr. Ben Simmons. Uh, yeah, actually, before we go to Nas, let's talk about Ben Simmons because I think the most controversial player. Well, uh, uh, Rotem, opinion, Rotem, no moment of silence for all the teams that we lost. Seems appropriate. Seems Sorry, appropriate. Let's, let's take a moment of silence yeah. in, in remembering uh, the Sixers, Jazz, Nets, and Nuggets. Hallelujah. All right, well, let's move on to Ben Simmons now that we've gotten that through the way. Frank, clearance state. If you were Elton Brand, GM of the 76ers, mm-hmm. is Ben Simmons on your roster next year? If I was Elton Brand, and uh, you know I wish I was Elton Brand sometimes, don't we all? I would probably say no, but it's tricky because it really comes down to what is his trade value. I mean, you can't just get rid of him. You're obviously not going to release him. Uh, you'd have to find a trade suitor and you'd have to get what you would perceive to be reasonable value back in return. And at this point, you know, on June 21st, after this, after the series that we just watched, uh, after the pass, his value, his trade value has never been lower. So now you're kind of stuck in the mud, so to speak. And maybe some team out there is willing to take a chance on Simmons and give up uh, draft capital or, an all-star caliber player in return, but if you're another GM, what have you seen from Ben Simmons recently that would lead you to feel like that's a good idea? That That's also an important question. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what people refer to as a poison pill, right? You, you missed your opportunity to get rid of him while his value is high, but you want to get rid of him while his value is low, but you're not getting much while his value is low. So it is a definitely tough situation for uh for Elton Brand and like you said we don't know what he's going to get returned obviously some teams might value him more some teams might value him as nothing which uh, I got to imagine Philadelphia is currently doing to him uh but obviously we do have some odds on where he might go uh first off to start off that question I asked you already will he be on the 76ers next year is a clean minus 250 no plus 180 yes uh Vegas does not think he'll be on a different team but Vegas does think he'll be on a different team and that team could be Portland at plus 250, the Spurs at plus 300, your Washington Wizards at plus 400, the Chicago Bulls at plus 400, the Golden State Warriors at plus 500, Oklahoma City, home of the... Oklahoma City, the rehab for future talent, and just ask Kemba Walker at plus 600, the Cleveland Cavaliers at plus 700, Mormonland at Utah at plus 800, and finally, the Houston Rockets at plus 1,000. Frank, not really in game terms. If you were Ben Simmons... And you are kind of being kicked out of Philadelphia right now. Where where do you see that as the best landing space? Not even for value. Just where would you want to be? Because it's kind of tough to pick anywhere else. Uh, since you've got to imagine he's not going to be able to shoot anywhere else either. That's a good point. Uh, if you can't shoot in Philadelphia, you're probably not going to be able to shoot and, uh, in Utah. But out of that list, if I was Ben Simmons, you know, now first we were Elton Brand, now we're Ben Simmons. It's quite a transition. I think that Golden State, or San Antonio would probably be the two places that I'd want to go. And really, it would just depend on what my priorities are. Do I want to win? Uh, do I want to be in a big market? Do I want to make the most money? Not that that really matters since this contract's already set in stone, but San Antonio and Golden State, those are winning organizations with championship caliber head coaches. And, you know, if you're looking to be reclamated, so to speak, those seem like two good landing spots to reshape your image, uh, reshape your game, uh, and kind of start fresh. Whereas if you're going to a place like Washington or Chicago or Cleveland even, where there's some front office dysfunction and there's not winning cultures, I don't really see that as a step up from Philadelphia, but 
maybe a step back more so. Well, with all due respect to Ben Simmons, I don't think anyone's getting him uh, a step up from where from what he deserves at the moment. But I'm glad that's what you brought up because flipping back to the Elton Brand side of the page, if you're talking about those good teams that Ben Simmons might want to end up, but like the Spurs, like the Warriors, who do they really have on the table that they're willing to let go that's going to fit in the Joel Embiid timeline? And I think this is the weirdest part of this all is that you've got Embiid cemented on the 76ers and you've now kind of either got to wait out his contract and make sure that he can start filling up the roster with more talented players around him or you can force an all-star, but you're not getting Steph Curry. I mean, what, are you going to get DeMar DeRozan from the Spurs? Is DeRozan really going to change this team's projection from a second-round exit perennially to a championship contender? Maybe. Maybe DeRozan's that guy. But if you ask the Raptors, he wasn't that guy, and he couldn't even get the Spurs into the playoffs this year. Not that it's all on him, but I just find it difficult to believe that Ben Simmons is going to be taking uh, not even a step forward. I take I, I find it hard to believe he's not just going to take a lateral step moving to some other team uh, that probably isn't going to be as well-suited or have a, such a good player as Joel Embiid. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a great situation for anyone involved. And if you're Elton Brand, the only way that Ben Simmons is on your roster next season is if is if you actually sit him down and get a guarantee that this offseason he's going to make a concentrated effort to improve his game, improve his shooting ability, especially at the free throw line, to make himself not a liability late in games, especially in the postseason. And Doc Rivers kind of alluded to that in the post-game press conference after Game 7. But, I mean, the guy has been in the NBA now for five-plus years. He's about to be 25 years old. Sure, he's a three-time All-Star and back-to-back All-NBA defender first team. But I dare say, you know, we haven't really seen any improvement from Ben Simmons. And it, it pains me to say that, and I'm sure it pains you to say that too because, you know, we've kind of defended him at times. But... Maybe he peaked his rookie year, and even if he's gotten incrementally better since then, it hasn't been uh, to the extent that the Sixers needed uh, to get over the hump, and that's concerning. And it just feels like the chemistry with this team is fractured, and Simmons is kind of at the heart of that. And between him and Embiid, uh, it it doesn't seem like it's going to work anymore. So, well, that plus 180 compared to plus minus 250, yes or no, will he be on the Sixers? Uh, the minus 250 is bad odds, but that seems like where this is kind of headed. So instead of trust the process, Rotom, bust the process. Blow it up. It didn't work. You picked the wrong players. Well, Frank, I got a hot take for you. I actually disagree. We spent the entire first year of this podcast, or at least I did. Maybe I was focused on it a little bit more than you were. Brett Brown was one of the worst coaches in the NBA. And I still hold that if he was back in the NBA, he'd be pretty bad. In a personal opinion, uh, due to a personal vendetta against Doc Rivers, I don't think they've improved that much coaching. But the Sixers have proven that they are a team that show loyalty to the guys that kind of put them on the stage. They are still dealing with the situation that they got rid of a fan-favorite GM in Sam Hinkie and are now kind of were left over with the Brett Brown era with all their players, and I kind of wouldn't be a little shocked if Ben Simmons actually stays in the Sixers because a guy like Elton Brand, who was entrenched in the Sam Hinkie department of analytics, and there's a, there's a great book uh, by uh, Jeroen Weitzman, the, the Bleacher Report article, who wrote on, on the process, and he talks about how everyone in Philadelphia was so infatuated with all of these players in this whole process, and they gave four years of being the worst team in basketball to be the team that they are now. I just wouldn't be shocked if they, they, they fold so easily, especially if Ben Simmons, who we've already said, isn't going to command great trademark. You're not getting Lillard. You're, you're not getting Harden. You're not getting Irving. What, what are you going to do? You're not getting an all-star for him. So I think the 76ers are going to look down, tell Ben, who has already clarified that he won't be playing in the Olympics this year for Australia. He's been spending all offseason, according to him, working with a personal trainer, uh, which is good news for them. I wouldn't be surprised if this is it. They sit him down and they say, this is your last chance. It shouldn't be. It should have already been past his last chance. But at plus 180, you got solid value with a franchise that has shown incredible loyalty to the players that come out of this regime. And Elton Brand doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's willing to cut those strings for a few first-round picks and not a first-round talent. Yeah, those are good points. I think the question there is, if you do decide to run it back, 
and you do bring Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons is back on the roster next season. Can you sell your fan base on that idea? Can you get the fan base to rally around this guy where it seems like right now uh, everyone is at odds with him? And can you get his teammates, especially Joel Embiid, can you get them to look past what just happened in this series? Uh, and, and will that lead to further chemistry issues down the road? It, it kind of just seems like at a certain point uh, it gets too stale to simply keep running it back year after year. As a Wizards fan, I know exactly how that feels. Um, but yeah, maybe you're right. I guess time will tell. But I guess the question is, out of all the teams that you listed, with the odds as potential trade partners for Ben Simmons, in your eyes, which one of those do you think makes the most sense? Not from his perspective, but in terms of which one is most realistic if he does get traded? I think the most realistic in that case, it becomes one of the lesser teams. I think Cleveland or Houston are both surprisingly low on this list for me uh, because Ben Simmons doesn't really have a say in where he's going to go, and it's a big reason why we differentiated where he would want to go versus where Elton Brand's going to send him is there's not really that value in this upper side because I don't think they're going to get Lillard, so I don't understand why Portland is number one up top there. I don't think that there's a value that Brand is going to be willing to go for uh, for the Spurs. And I think... Is replacing I think ben the rumor Simmons. the yeah. rumors that I've seen is well the name that's floated around on that idea is uh, CJ McCollum. I think that might that would probably be the, the centerpiece in that hypothetical. But well I, I, and then I understand that situation, but in that regard, are you really gonna ship out CJ McCollum for Ben Simmons and then uh, you're probably turning around and getting rid of Lillard to put somewhere else because I mean, what, what is an offense of Ben Simmons and, and Damian Lillard? That's that's not an offense. That's just a two guys arguing over it's the ball. It's offensive. Uh, it's offensive is, is what it is, and I absolutely agree with you. So I think I'm surprised that the Cleveland Cavaliers, who have players like Jared Allen, like Darius Garland, like Colin Sexton, who could contribute now to the Sixers team uh, in the same way that Houston might be able to give up a guy like Christian Wood or uh, Kevin Porter Jr. Or, or a lot of the lesser known, like Deshaun Tate, first-team all-rookie Deshaun Tate. Uh, I think there's a lot of great players that 76ers kind of have to be sold on to agree here. And I just don't buy a full blow-up by the 76ers. I don't buy a full blow-up by the Trailblazers, who obviously are the favorite here. And so I'm going to pass on them. Going here. Oh, also I'll throw in the Bulls, too, because they're also a team that uh, easily could send up a lower market and over to this side. and Just a whole other fun conundrum. So I'm going between the Bulls at plus 400, but a value pick, absolutely, plus 700 for the Cavs. Uh, I think Jared Allen or uh, or Darius Garland would look pretty good in uh, that fill of blue. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And I agree with you on the Portland point. I get why they have the best. I get why they're the favorite in terms of the odds. Uh, they're, they're a team that's kind of looking to shake things up, much like the 76ers might be. Uh, you want to make Damian Lillard happy. You're getting a new coach, but I feel like the teams on this list that are that are the teams on this list with head coaching openings, uh, in a way, I feel like that kind of works against their chances of getting Ben Simmons, right? Because you're bringing in a new coach, you're spending all this much of the off season looking for a new head coach. You really have the time, uh, the resources to exhaust making a major trade, a franchise-altering trade, to bring in a guy like Ben Simmons, who's polarizing. But I think at plus 300, the Spurs, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, I wouldn't sleep as them, I wouldn't sleep on them as a dark horse to pull off a Ben Simmons trade because they've kind of been looming in the shadows for a few years now. Uh, they're no longer the perennial playoff team, the championship team that we once knew and loved, but... Popovich is getting up there in years. He probably only has a couple more years left being a head coach. Maybe the Spurs look to make a big change and bring in a guy like Simmons who theoretically might be able to build a team around. Maybe. In theory, it's a big if. But just looking at how the salary the salary caps line up for both teams, if you traded, say, Rudy Gay and DeJounte Murray and maybe a draft pick for Ben Simmons... Something like that, I think, could realistically happen, maybe, and be good for both sides. So I wouldn't sleep on the Spurs at plus 300. Uh, an organization that hasn't made a big move in a while, but it feels like they're due for one.
Yeah, and that's definitely a good call because like those other teams I was listing, they have a lot of good talent. DeJounte Murray, you obviously said, Keldon Johnson, uh, they got Lonnie Walker. I think there's a lot of good players that the Sixers could be sold on there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like that. Actually, I didn't, I didn't consider that uh, as much of an option. I think that is maybe a bolder stroke than we've seen the Spurs do in, in a long time. But we'll see. Pop can do uh, anything he wants. Uh, but you did mention a pretty big thing of this offseason, uh, head coaching. A lot of open jobs. A tough economy, Rodham. Tough times right now. Is I hear unemployment's a little bit more uh, more valuable nowadays than being an NBA head coach. Uh, but, you know, maybe you keep telling guys like Stan Van Gundy that uh, because I don't know if he's getting another one. But, Frank, we have seven job openings. Uh, your beloved Washington Wizards, we got to talk to them once again. Uh, this time, son Scott Brooks. I bet you're uh, happy about that one. Absolutely. Aesthetic. Through the moon. Absolutely. Ecstatic, but uh, elsewhere, a few bigger names kind of leaving. Rick Carlisle at the Dallas Mavericks had one of the greatest offensive seasons in history last year, but he is now gone. Terry Stotts, uh, the Portland Trailblazer stalwart that has led them through the Western Conference Finals, uh, has now been ousted. Brad Stevens, obviously now a front uh, front office guy, as the new GM of the Boston Celtics leaves a hole behind him. Uh, Indianapolis is running out of Nates as both Bjorkren and McMillan have both left, and they're going to look for another one there. Uh, On top of that, we've got Orlando and New Orleans looking for their head coach. Frank, you've been Elton Brand. You've been Ben Simmons. You've been a lot of good things. If you were NBA head coach, which you still could be, which one would you most want to go to there? Well, like you said, it's unprecedented that if you're a free agent head coach right now, you know there's seven different places that you could go to. That's seven different parts of the country, seven different markets seven different rosters, seven different fan bases, a lot of variables uh, that would go into that decision. But to me, and it's not, there's no clear-cut best situation, I think. I think you can make arguments for a few different teams. But I feel like Dallas would probably be the most attractive option, I think, if I was a head coach looking for a new job. And obviously the biggest draw there is Luka. I mean, no matter what other situation you go to here, you're not going to get a player uh, as young and as talented as Luca with the future that he has ahead of him. And the drawback to Dallas is there's no GM in place right now, but at the same time, that could be attractive to a head coach. Maybe you feel like you'll have more say and more influence within the organization and within the front office. But I think the combination of Luca. And it's a winning culture. They've they've won champ. They've won a championship within the past decade. And also, you have an owner in Mark Cuban who's aggressive, uh, resourceful, rich. Obviously, that helps. And I think Cuban is an owner who's not afraid to take big swings and to do whatever it takes to make the best situation possible for uh, a head coach, whatever that may be, whatever the form that may come in. Uh, to me, those factors, I think, give Dallas a slight edge over somewhere else like Boston or New Orleans or Portland. That's fair. I mean, Luca is absolutely, you know, uh, crazy. Well, I mean, is it too crazy to say, though, that is it maybe Zion or Tatum are at least close enough where it might be worth to take that step down? I mean, the chance to coach one of the greatest ever of all time, you know, you don't get a lot. I mean, ask, ask any Michael Jordan's coach. Only three people have ever done it, and they... Uh, not at all too happy with themselves after that. And even LeBron, you know, uh, a certain David Blatt will tell you that coaching LeBron James is not, not an easy situation. So I got to imagine that Luka Doncic or even Zion Williams himself, despite how young they are, are probably a little bit of a tough pickle. But I don't know if that makes Dallas the easiest pick. Uh, I think Tatum and Brown uh, and Boston just make too good of a combination. And if you are talking about maybe you're happy but no GM, is Portland maybe a nice little draw? You do have two very valuable assets that you can get rid of and maybe build a new team. If you're a Ben Simmons believer and you end up as the head coach of the, the, the Portland Trailblazers, and that's the move you make, if if we see a Stan Van Gundy to Portland, which would be uh, absurd, but Van Gundy reining in Ben Simmons as his his new number four to run that, that hold-in-one offense, uh, I think... I think that'd be a lot of fun to watch. Obviously, will it happen? Probably not. But I, I do think that while Dallas is interesting because of Luka, I do think that depending on the head coach, a lot of these options could be really interesting. And Frank, I think that's where we kind of lead into any specific head coaches you're looking for a lot of these openings. We don't have a lot of the odds, but we do know a pretty good list of who is likely to fill a lot of these slots. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of coaches that have been floated around as potential candidates for these different jobs, and even coaches that are already on that are already going on their second interviews for some of these teams. Specifically with Portland, you have Becky Hammond and Chauncey Billups. One of them appears that they're going to be the next Trailblazers head coach. So hopefully, by the time this episode's out, uh, Portland has not made a hire, uh, so that what we're saying here uh, still holds some water. But I think. Out of all the coaches, uh, out of all the coaching candidacies that have been floated around, the way the way I look at it is, there's three there's three previous head coaches that I think are worth hiring right now, and that's Rick Carlisle, uh, Mike D'Antoni, and Kenny Atkinson, and, and maybe Terry Stotts too. You could throw them in at, at, on the outside of that tier, and then there's four co- there's four coaches with no head coaching experience that I think would be good hires, coaches that are ready for their first time, coaches that are ready for first time head coaching jobs. And that would be Becky Hammond, Chauncey Billups, uh, Wes Unsell Jr., and Ime Udoka. And I, in total, that's seven coaches that I think I would consider hiring if I were one of these teams. And I don't think you can really go wrong. It just depends on, you know, what organizational direct, what organization direction are you trying to go in of course, there's a lot of other variables that go into it as well. Yeah, looking at looking these candidates, especially such a long list, you've already mentioned such great guys. You you did happen to leave off Stan Van Gundy, who I uh, love to mention, and glad glad that he might be getting another chance. Uh, if you were one of these seven teams, how do you how do you shape up your top three? Because you did you did kind of separate these people by like what their experience mm. is, but it's hard to compare a Becky Hammond who has the years and years under Pop to a guy like Emeka Udoka who has NBA experience and has great experience for one or two years under Doc Rivers, but maybe doesn't really have the same quality uh, as we've seen, especially on the offensive uh, coaching side. Maybe there's a Mike D'Antoni that you're a little bit more excited about. Obviously, head coach of the Lakers, the Nets, the, the Knicks, uh, the, the 76ers, not the 76ers, the, the, the Phoenix Suns. He knows what it takes to run a franchise, so it, maybe... Maybe hard to pick without knowing your situation, but if you were just generally one of these seven teams, uh, which you know, how, what's your top three looking like? What's your big board looking like? Yeah, and I, I definitely sectioned off uh, all of these candidates by basically by age and by experience. And I don't know if that's offensive or anything, but that's just what I did. Uh, but for the sake of parity, to answer your question, I would choose one coach uh, from the tier of first-time head coaches. So that's Becky Hammond, uh, Chauncey Billups. West Sunsell Jr. and Udoka. And between those four, I would go with Chauncey Billups. Uh, I think Becky Hammond and West Sunsell Jr., uh, great coaching, great potential coaching candidates. But Billups, to me, a little bit of a bias here because he is one of my favorite basketball players of all time. But I think there's some, there's some precedence now for former players having success as head coaches. I feel like Chauncey Billups has the makings of a good NBA head coach. And from the tier of coaches, uh, former head coaches with experience, I would say Rick Carlisle over Mike D'Antoni or Terry Stotts. I still feel like Rick Carlisle is a really good head coach. I know it's been a long time. He won a championship with the Mavs. But I don't blame him exactly. I don't really blame him uh, for Dallas's lack of playoff success recently. I mean, like you alluded to it earlier, he coached the best offense in NBA history. Just was that last year? No, two years ago, right? That was that was last year. Yeah, he's only one year removed from being the head coach of statistically the best offense in the history of the NBA, and that goes without saying. Obviously, it's wildly impressive. And then the the wild card for my third option, I think, is another former head coach in Kenny Atkinson, somebody that I think is kind of being overlooked in this whole discussion of this whole discussion of head coaching openings because Kenny Atkinson, I think kind of got a bad rap in Brooklyn. I feel like he was having success with the Nets, and Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant came along, and he kind of just got pushed out. But it wasn't because of anything he did. It was just a bad situation, and he got the bad end of the stick. But I still feel like Kenny Atkinson uh, is a good head coach, especially when it comes to player development. So those would be my top three. It's a great top three. Good news for you, uh, both, uh, especially for that third one. Kenny Atkinson does seem to be a pretty hot take for the uh, Orlando Magic and the Dallas Mavericks seat. Uh, I, I got to agree with you on a few of those. I'm, I'm leaning towards the Mike D'Antoni side of the Rick Carlisle versus Mike D'Antoni debate there. 
Ricky C, one of the greatest head coaches of all time. I think his offense would work in a lot of great systems. I think him in Boston would be such a great collaboration between him and Stevens. But outside of there, I find it difficult to see where he goes. Now, Mike D'Antoni, on the other side, if we're talking about a coach that can come in and maybe save a team like the Trailblazers, I can't imagine a seven seconds or less offense with my, with D'Antoni, Lillard, McCollum, Covington, I guess, if he's still there. If those guys are all still there, I think seven seconds or less, D'Antoni offense would be absolutely insane. And I think for a lot of these teams, looking at New Orleans, looking at Orlando, looking at Indianapolis, if you're looking for a guy to maybe bring in a whole new wave of a more modern offense, somehow the oldest guy on this list, D'Antoni, I think is, is really the three-ball revolution a lot of these smaller markets kind of might need. Uh, and so he's going to be my pick over the Ricky. Uh, Emeka Yudoka, a, a guy that I am still amazed has not gotten an NBA job yet. Uh, Nets assistant at the moment, uh, one of the best defensive coaches uh, in, in any league. You know, it's hard to quantify any of that. But if you hear any interview that he's had with guys like Chauncey Billups, with guys like Joe Mazzarelli, uh, with his boss in Doc Rivers and Brad Stevens, they kind of say the same thing every time, that their defenses don't run the same way if Aime Yudoka doesn't stand there and drill his defensive matchups into them. And that's the kind of thing that I think uh, you can compare it to a guy like Robert Sala, uh, the new head coach of the New York Jets, and I think it, it's a reopening kind of option. He might be fresh. He might never have had this opportunity before. But the way he runs a team, the way other coaches talk about him, the way, you know, you can kind of look at him and you say, this is, this is a shining light to fix our team. Would love, love to see that go to New Orleans. Uh, and on top of that, former Grizzlies head coach Dave Yoger uh, led the Grizzlies mm. to a Western Conference Finals. Doesn't get enough credit for it. Kind of got stuck in Sacramento under Vlade Divac for a little too long. But I think someone's going to free him. And I think, to your delight, that might just be the Washington Wizards. Definitely wouldn't mind that. Um, but again, all great options that you listed, that I listed. I think the only way any of these teams could go wrong is if you hire... Uh, Stan Van Gundy or Scott Brooks. Out of all the potential coaches you could hire right now, don't hire those two. If you do, uh, you will reap sorrows for years for years to come. You're digging your own grave. Uh, yeah, you're digging your own grave, Scott Brooks. You hate to see it, but on the other hand, you love to see it, I guess, kind of. You know, he's on his way out. You, we'll, we'll have a parade for him when we guarantee at the end of uh, the start of next season uh, that he will not be in the NBA, but you'll make sure to hear from us between now and then uh, about all the delightful things in sports. You know, I didn't get to talk about the Euros, but uh, go uh, Forza Azuri. Uh, get that Italia win up and going. I need that money to cash out, plus 1600 if you haven't put in Italy to win the Euro. Uh, but aside from that, other great sport things going on this week, the NBA playoffs, the NFL playoffs, the, N- N- the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs, uh, some golf I think is going on right about now, Frank. And if you want to hear about any of that, uh, make sure to check us out both on Twitter and on Instagram at PlayItPod. You can check me out at Rodham Kaufman. And Frank, where can our lovely listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at FrankJP0. Uh, we're fully vaxxed, Rodham, and we're ready to thrax. And that all that is all I have to say.